Well, let's hear God's word proclaimed, the gospel proclaimed from the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 8. As we come to hear this word, I do hope you have a Bible in front of you so you can follow along with God's word, God speaking to you from the pages of his scriptures. Let's pray for his spirit to help us, not just understand, but be moved to keep trusting in Jesus, or for you the first time to start trusting in Jesus today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that we hear you from your word, the Bible. We're listening to your voice. You speak to us from the scriptures. So now as you speak, help us to listen and to look to Jesus here and believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are things in life that are just, not just out of control, not just hard, but evil, like real horrible evil things in life. As you look around the world and perhaps you're watching the news, there are things that just seem like, yes, out of control, but evil things, things that are horrible things that people do to one another. This, of course, is the nature of sin, isn't it? Sin spills out of our hearts into our lives, into our neighborhoods, even to the nation's. And what many people mean for evil, with what they do to one another, the question often comes is, can God use this for good? Can God use this for good? For us now, when COVID-19 happened, when the coronavirus crisis hit, when it came to our town, our city, our region in Bendigo and central Victoria, when church services were suspended, perhaps this was a feeling you were feeling, I was feeling it. I was feeling like we didn't want to suspend church services. We didn't want to be far apart from each other. We didn't want this to happen. And perhaps you wondered, what is God doing in this? Could God even use this? Like in our call to worship, we heard from Genesis 50 verse 20. It's such a helpful starting point, isn't it? Which is why it was our call to worship, to remind us that God is always doing something, even amongst the evil in our world today. Genesis 50 verse 20, as for you, evil men, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Today, as Cameron read from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 25, we're in Acts 8 and we're in this episode, viewing this episode, and what we see is this. We see that the gospel can go as wide as Samaria, but doesn't go as deep into Simon the magician. So how does God mean this episode for good? When persecution happens, how does he mean it for good? When, when the gospel doesn't seem to change some people, knowing the gospel can change everything, how does he mean it for good? Well, let's dive in and have a look. I do hope you have your Bible in front of you. And what we see in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, in the introduction of this episode, what we see here is the persecuted church is now ravaged. We've seen in the, in the book of Acts, in this series in Acts, which we've entitled The Unhindered Gospel, during this COVID-19 period where through the book of Acts, we see that there are many things that... Don't just see you know, services suspended for them, which is what we're feeling now, but for, for, for things for them is, is the gospel for being a Christian, for having the name of Christ, is becoming something that you're actually attacked for, you're persecuted. 
This persecution has been heating up, of course. It's like a pot of boiling water. First, there was kind of just a little couple of bubbles of persecution. It was just some warnings from the authorities, from the religious rulers. But then, of course, those bubbles turned to a simmer. And those religious authorities actually didn't just warn the apostles to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They beat them for it. And that was meant to kind of shut them up, stop doing this. But then, of course, it came to boiling point and it spilled over and it's everywhere. And this persecution has has now seen in Acts chapter 8, the church scattered. We saw from last week that Stephen, one of the seven servants, one of the diaconate, uh, he's actually executed. Acts chapter 8 verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And, and there arose on that great day, uh, uh, that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who stayed with the church in Jerusalem as their home base. So the, the, the church is scattered. And with this happening, with Stephen being stoned, with falsely charged with being a blasphemer, with all the forces of evil, with Satan at the wheel aiming to destroy the church, do we think that's what's going to happen? Do we think that's it? See, I think when, when evil comes or when our life is disrupted, we can sometimes fall into the temptation of forgetting Jesus' words. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church, he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do we believe Jesus when persecution comes? Do we believe Jesus when COVID comes? When the church can't gather together? Do we actually believe Jesus that that's okay, the church will prevail? Do we believe Jesus when ISO comes? See, as persecution erupts from evil and enraged hearts of men, and then we meet Saul who kind of personifies all this in a person with a name we can look at, Saul is a religious terrorist who is angry and persecuting. And we read the word, he ravages the church. He goes on a house-to-house, search-and-destroy mission, men and women, prison and death, and we know Saul was killing them, murdering them. He's not just putting them in prison. We know this from the rest of the context of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Saul, we read, was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then we actually read Saul's own testimony in a kind of a court of law. He says, I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison, both men and women. He says later in his testimony that, that I, I not only locked up people in prison, but I gave my approval, my vote for their death. Saul is killing people. He is ravaging the church. Saul has such a hard heart against the gospel that we are for the moment left to wonder, can the gospel go deep into Saul? Yet for now, we see with all our questions, here's what's great, here's what's wonderful, here's what is full of joy, even in the midst of persecution. The gospel goes as wide as Samaria. See, while the apostles stay in Jerusalem, while some of the church stays in Jerusalem, we see one of the deacons, one of the seven servants from Acts 6, just like the Hellenist Jew uh, Stephen, uh, who was stoned. Here we see one of them, uh, who also was perhaps a Hellenist Jew, who was converted, became a, a Christian. He's not an apostle, but he's called an evangelist. Philip is his name, and Philip 
goes with the scattering and the persecuted church into Samaria. Of all places, Samaria. See, if we were in Luke's gospel earlier this year in term one, and if you know Samaria, you know this is one of those places, it's the neighboring region. It's, it's not the place that those from Judea necessarily want to go to. Samaria is kind of like Ballarat to Bendigo. You know, you don't really kind of go there unless you have to. And, and in fact, we know that, that uh, Jews hated Samaritans, the Samarians, so much that Jesus even capitalizes on this hate by telling that parable in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan. This hate has a long history. This enmity between Jews and Samaritans has a long history. It goes back to the division of the kingdom. You've got the ten tribes, the north. They end up being part of the north. And, and then uh, the Assyrian conquest comes along and they get taken away. Then later on in history, uh, people are brought back. They're assimilated and mixed. They're kind of a mix of uh, different groups of people, mix of religion. They get the Jewish religion and they mix it with other religions. They get this temple, which later becomes the Temple of Zeus. Like They do all sorts of things things right which means they're neighbors of the jews they're sort of kind of half jews but they're despised by the jews and it's a deeply embedded historical hate yet here they are loved by philip and others as they share the gospel of jesus the good news of jesus of the love of God that Jesus would die even for Samarians. It's a beautiful scene, isn't it? See the persecution that breaks out, what some meant for evil, God means for good. For good news to go as wide as even Samaria. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is coming true here, isn't it? Remember the the purpose statement or the, the whole theme statement for the whole of the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus says to his apostles, but you receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then even in Samaria and then to the end of the earth. Except what's weird here is that it's not the apostolic witness that first goes to Samaria by just the apostles alone. It's the scattered Christians who go, taking evangelism, taking the gospel, sharing the gospel to Samaria. Which actually makes sense of what happens next. As you read or heard read from the Bible reading, verses 14 to 17, you might have thought, well, that's a bit strange. Let's read it again. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Peter and John are sent to Samaria. They're sent over. And how special is that, right? Let's just start with there. How special is it that Peter and John go there? I mean, Peter and John, their Jewish background, but they're going to go to Samaria. And particularly, how special is it about John? Remember John? Uh, remember John when John was with Jesus? So we know this from Luke 9. Luke 9, uh, verse 51, was that hinge in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus in the north 
of Israel. And then he starts traveling south with his face resolutely headed towards Jerusalem. And as he goes through Samaria, we know the Samarians, the Samaritans didn't necessarily receive him very well. So there's John, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. And what does he say? He says, Jesus, do you want fire to come down from heaven? Do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked John for that. So how special is it that here is John who once looked at the Samaritans with frustration and said, Jesus, let's bring fire now from heaven on them, now goes to them, not to bring judgment upon them, but to bring the good news of salvation for them. Look at how the gospel changes everything for John, for the Samaritans. So here we see a scattering of the church, the sharing of the gospel of Philip the Evangelist, and then the apostles go from Jerusalem over to Samaria. And hang on a minute, this is where it gets weird. This is where you might have questions. Did you see that? Verse 14, they go from Samaria, and they go there, verse 15, to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on them but had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Question. Here's a question. As you read the book of Acts, as you read the whole Bible, you'll be asking this question, what's going on here? Like, what's going on here? For we saw in verse 12, the Samaritans believed and were baptized. And then, when the apostles hear this back in Jerusalem, they sent a delegation of Peter and John so that the Samaritans would receive the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? How can they be like believers, but then they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit? What is going on here? This passage has caused many people to trip up and have lots of different weird and not-so-wonderful interpretations. Remember we talked about when the book of Acts, how you read the book of Acts and how we interpret it. Remember, remember how we interpret it? We, we always interpret it through Scripture. So we, we don't just take a, a, a set of verses and say, uh, that's what we need to do. We don't just prescribe it that way. I mean, what are the options here anyway? If you look at the options, and, and people have put up options for all sorts of reasons what's going on here, um, one thing people say is that perhaps the, that you know you need the special hands to receive the Holy Spirit, but it can't be that, can it? Like it can't be that to receive the Holy Spirit you can have the special Jedi hands of the apostles because in Acts 10 the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles with no hands being laid on them. It can't be that. It also can't be that they weren't true believers to start with. It's not like, you know, you're saying, well, hang on a minute, you're not really Christians yet, um, and, and so you're not true believers, because what we read is they received and believed the word of God and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Neither Philip was a complete idiot, or actually they are real believers. That can't be that they're not real believers. What's, you know, what does it mean? It also can't be, and this has been, actually many people would argue this, um, but it can't be this. It can't be that there's a second baptism going on here. Like there's a, It can't be there's a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some people would argue that, but that's the thing. There can't be a second baptism here because they hadn't received the Holy Spirit in the first place. So there's no second baptism here in the Holy Spirit. So what is going on here? Now we've talked about this again and again in the book of Acts, about what is unique to the book of Acts. We've talked about this before. 
in the book of Acts, there is a really big difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. What is described and what is prescribed. What is described, in other words, what just happens, and what is prescribed is in what we should do. Now, how do you know the difference? How do you tell the difference? Well, there's a few obvious things. Is what is being shown to us in an episode in the book of Acts, is it just described or is it given an imperative as to what we should do? Um, is it shown as this is normal or is it shown as this is unique? And so here what we have is what is described, not prescribed. What happens here is, is God is waiting for the Samaritans to receive the Spirit until the apostles arrive and verify the gospel has gone as wide as even Samaria. Acts 1 verse 8, the thematic statement of the book, is being fulfilled. And Jesus' words are being fulfilled. You remember, the apostles are his witnesses for the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, then to the end of the earth. You see, what's happening here is, whilst the church has been scattered and Philip has gone and the gospel has been shared, because it's so important that the church not be divided and there be a Samaritan church and a Jewish church, which would be really problematic No, it's one apostolic church, one church, one baptism, one Lord. And so the apostles in this unique situation go to even the Samaritans to see, are they part of this church, Jesus' church? Yes. So this is a unique situation here where they receive the Holy Spirit because this is a confirmation by the apostles, these guys. These guys are genuine believers in the the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has gone as wide as Samaria. But then here's where we take a turn in this episode. The gospel has gone as wide as Samaria, but why doesn't it go as deep into Simon the magician? We look in Acts chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. In Acts 8, 18 to 25, we see Simon the magician. Now, Simon is not a pen and teller kind of magician. He's not a just a doer of tricks that you know he's got a trade it's not that kind of magician here is a person we meet who believes in the power of magic the sorcery of satan and that this power that he believes in he relies upon makes him impressive to others it makes him great we we read luke's language so when you first meet Simon in verse 9, not only do you see he's a magician, he's amazing people with power, but also he is saying that he's somebody great in verse 10. Verse 10, this man is the power of God that is called great. You see, Simon is a self-worshipper and he works his magic to make himself great. So what... For Simon, who looks for impressive things, who looks for great things, who looks for power, when he sees the power of the gospel going into Samaria, or at least he sees the outer signs and the miracles, he's amazed, verse 13. And then verse 18. Look at verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Things just took a very dark turn. For we know when people want to use money for leverage in relationships 
with the church or with God, what comes next is perishing. Anyone remember Ananias and Sapphira? What comes next is perishing, and that's what Peter says. Peter tells Simon, you got to repent, man. you got to repent. Turn from this sin. You can't buy the gospel. Money is given by God to be used to fund the work of God for the furtherance of the gospel, for investment in treasure in heaven, for seeing us and others love God, love people and make disciples of Jesus. But if we think we can pay for salvation and the Spirit's enabling power, which is priceless, we will perish eternally. If we're not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we think we can buy it with money, we're instead seeing the gospel as a way for our own power. I heard a real story of a church where a wealthy member said to the gospel-centered pastor, a man who was preaching the gospel, loved the gospel, this wealthy member said to this gospel-loving pastor, if you don't run church the way I want you to run church, I'll stop giving money to the church. And this old pastor wisely said, well, you can take your money and perish with it. The gospel is priceless. And just like money can't buy you love, you cannot buy the love of God. You cannot buy the power of new relationship with God because Jesus has paid that price with his blood. It's priceless because it's Jesus. Jesus is the way you have a relationship with God, not money. Now, at Simon's sin, Peter says Simon needs to repent. We look at verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Simon is saying, sorry, Peter is saying to Simon, you need to confess your sins to God, repent of it in your heart, turn from your sin. Now, when it comes to Simon, what we notice about him is, What is sad is he doesn't. In fact, he doesn't personally. He just says to Peter, could you pray for me that that, that something bad won't happen to me? Notice this, repentance is meant to come from the heart. Simon's not repentant from the heart. He just wants Peter to do all that stuff for him. He just wants to get out 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 of jail clause or kind of an escape card. He doesn't actually want to repent and have a relationship with God. The gospel doesn't go deep into Simon. There are many interpretations of what's going on here. Is Simon a genuine believer that, that uh, somehow stops being a genuine believer? You may have heard of talk about is someone saved once always saved and all that sort of stuff. Well, I did some reading and, and really trusted theologians, John Calvin and John Owen are helpful here. John Bunyan's another one. And as you follow the threads of all they say about this passage and other passages, what we see is this. What we see is what we see, in fact, today. We know this, don't we, Reforming Church? We know this, Reforming Church friends. You may know this in people that are your friends or family. There is actually a real difference between professed faith and true faith. I've had friends who I've known get up and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. 
And you kind of think, well, you live in as a Christian. You don't seem to love Jesus and his church very much. And you, know, you don't really love your neighbor the way you speak about your neighbors. And you know, you've got some underlying racism in your heart that seems to come out in your words. And you kind of always wonder, like, what does that mean? Now, yes, there is place for sanctification and growth and repentance. But that's the point, isn't it? A Christian is not perfect, but they are repentant. A Christian is not someone that has a perfect lifestyle, but they have a repentant lifestyle. They want to actually turn from their sin. They confess their sins daily, keep short accounts with God. They confess and say, Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord and I love Him. That's the Christian life. It's a repentant life. Simon does not have it here. Simon the magician does not have this repentant life. And what John Calvin, John Owen and John Bunyan are all saying is this, God is sovereign over salvation, yes, but you can tell a true Christian because they're a repentant Christian. There's a difference between just saying I'm a Christian but actually trusting in Christ Jesus as Lord and being repentant. Simon doesn't show that genuine repentance. He won't even pray in repentance on his own behalf. He's just more concerned that something bad won't happen to him in this life rather than having life with God now and forever. When the gospel can go as wide as Samaria but doesn't go as as deep into Simon, how can God mean this for good? That's the question we started with. Here's the question we finished with. When the gospel goes as wide as Samaria, praise God, and yet not as deep as in someone like Simon, how can God use this for good? Well, what seems is meant for evil, God can use anything for good. Those that killed Stephen meant that out of evil intent. Persecution, execution and scattering to scatter and end this church. That was meant for evil, but God means it for good. See, when it seems the church is going to be shut down, every time it seems like this church is going to be shut down, God enables the church to go on an expeditionary mission into Samaria. The gospel is unhindered. So what can you and I learn, Reforming Church family and Reforming Church friends? What can you and I learn in Bendigo and beyond? I think there's two big areas we learn from this episode as learners, as disciples of Jesus about the unhindered gospel. The first thing, how do we live in light of the gospel going into Samaria and lighting up Samaria? How do we learn from that? Three things. Firstly, persecution can lead to evangelism. We ought not pray for persecution. We don't ask God to be persecuted. But we know that all those in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, as Paul writes to Timothy. And also reframes how we think about persecution. Yes, we would never want it, we'd never seek it. But when it comes, can we see that God has purposes in it? That the church will not just survive, but God could even use it to thrive the gospel could go to other places. Who'd ever thought that when things happened in the communist revolution in China that there would be more Christians in China now than there are in Europe? Who'd ever thought that when the gospel went to places like even Australia, there would be you and I now at this end of the earth? Secondly, we learn this, 
the gospel is for others out there we don't even like at the moment. Our world is full of different people and I'm sure you could possibly think of someone you would not naturally hang out with, you would not naturally like. Perhaps there's someone distant from you like over there in Samaria or perhaps they're just someone that's hurt you. You know, the problem with Samaria, the Samaritans and the Jews was a deep and abiding generational hurt and pain and hate. If you've been to places or familiar places like Northern Ireland, it's that kind of generational hate. It's, ah, my father did something to your father and your father did something to my father and his grandfather. It's that kind of thing. And it may have never been personally to you, but you just hate them because they're different than you or they're those people over there. Perhaps they're that religion over there. But do you know the gospel is even for them? The gospel is for our neighbours and it's for the nations. The gospel's even for those bad people today. The gospel's for those we don't like. So let's pray for those we don't like so we can love them with the gospel too. And thirdly, that means gospel sharing is not just for preachers of the gospel. Notice this, Philip is called the evangelist. He's not one of the apostles. He's one of the seven servants, one of the deacons. Perhaps he serves in the board of management, but he, he ends up being a gospel sharer. He's telling people the gospel. We'll see more of that later in the book of Acts, how he does that on a one-to-one basis with someone very important and influential in another nation. But here is Philip sharing the gospel. This is for everyone. This is not just for the preachers. Why do we preach on a Sunday in gathered worship or in online worship? We preach out so we can reach out. We preach to equip and share so that you can actually also perhaps tell someone the difference Jesus makes to your life too. The gospel changed everything for me, and it can for you. What does it then mean for us in that second category to live in light of Simon's unrepentant heart? I think three things again. Firstly, when you look at Simon the magician, the first thing we should learn is this, watch your own heart. Again, Christians, we're not perfect people, but we are repentant people. And repentance is not a once-off that we did on Monday or did last year about a certain sin or messiness in our life. Now, repentance is a daily thing. It's a turning from sin to Jesus, turning from hate to love in Christ, to hate what God hates but to love what God loves. Secondly, don't come to Jesus to make much of you. That's that's Simon the magician's problem. He sees power. He sees the lights light up with his name. He's being made great. Simon the magician, Simon with the power. There's a great temptation for pastors, leaders, preachers, churches to use the gospel as a leverage to make yourself great. Don't do it. Don't fall into that temptation. Reforming church, may that never be of us, may it never be of me, that we would want to be great because of the gospel. No, Jesus is great. Thirdly, if you watch your own heart firstly and find you've been making much of yourself, you've been worshipping yourself, wrong worship. Thirdly, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus alone and worship him, live for him. For the gospel goes as wide here 
in Bendigo and beyond and needs to go as deep here into my heart, into our heart as a whole church. And the power of the unhindered gospel can do that because the gospel is about how Jesus does change everything. And how does Jesus do that ultimately? How's the gospel so powerful that it can change everything? How's the gospel so powerful that what evil men intend, actually God uses for good? How? It's the cross, isn't it? It's at the centre of the gospel. The good news of Jesus is a cross. It's a cross where, 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 where men intent on evil, who are intent on destroying, getting rid of, kicking God again out of this world, and to, to ignore him, to be against him, God even uses it for good. For God takes the cross and then saves us from our sin. The cross was meant for evil, but God meant it for your good, for your salvation. That's how the gospel changes everything. So when you look to Jesus, that's the power you look at. The power of salvation in the power of the cross of Christ for you. For you and I, come to Jesus, listen to Jesus, trust in Jesus and see what God means for good. For us to see Jesus, to enjoy him and glorify him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son Jesus who comes to save us from our sin but also Samaritans, who comes to see us repent and not just Simon the magician, but for me, for us. So we pray that we would be a repentant church. We pray this would be our lifestyle, our practice, to turn from sin by trusting in Jesus, the one who came to die for our sin, save us from our sin, and make us more like him. And we pray that you would keep seeing the gospel go wider and wider and wider, that we would share this message with others again and again and again so others may come to know him too and repent and rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.